Well, again, welcome and welcome to the second Sunday in Advent as we uh, shared words of hospitality before Mass began. I want to echo those words and welcome again Art and Sue from Colorado. They are joining our nomad friends in the back parking lot, our friends from the United Methodist Church who are doing a heroic job in helping us rebuild. So welcome to Art and Sue. Welcome to our nomad friends. Welcome to all of you who are joining us today for this second Sunday in Advent. Today, I want to throw out a question, I want to tell a story, and I want to reverently hold the tension. There's a question, there's a story, and there is some tension. Let's first propose the question. Is everything in the Bible trustworthy? Is every detail in the Bible believable? Is everything in the Bible from God? Big question, right? There's a question, there's a story, and there's some tension. Let's start with a question. Going to re-ask the question now that you've had a couple seconds to digest it. Is everything in the Bible from God? It's a big question to start with today, and it's a big question to grapple with in our spiritual life. And there can only be one or of two answers to that question. Either everything in the Bible is absolutely 100% inspired by God, or none of it is. There could be no two ways about that. There's no middle ground. There's no us sifting through, well, some of it's good and some of it's bad. No, there's only one answer to the question. In the Bible, the Word of God that we have, Either everything in the Bible is absolutely inspired by God, or none of it is. And how we fall, how we land in the answer to that question, has a significant influence in our spiritual life, in our relationship with God, in our understanding of Jesus, and where we find ourselves today, at this moment, preparing for the birth of Jesus. Do you believe that everything in the Bible is inspired? Not just the big stories about Jesus, about his birth, about his death and resurrection. Not just the big things like the exodus from Egypt or the, the names of the kings of Israel. But all the little details that are there. The when and the where and the how, all those specific little bitty details. Do you believe that everything in the Bible is absolutely inspired by God? That's the question. And based off of your answer to the question will dictate our ability to embrace the story. See, there's a question, there's a story, and there's some tension today. Now, for the sake of our conversation today, I, I'm going to stand before you today. I'm going to invite you to join me today that the answer to the question is yes. Everything in the Bible is absolutely inspired by God. If that's not where you are, stay with me today in this conversation and let me invite you into another conversation immediately after Mass. I'll stay in church as long as it takes to just walk with you, to listen to you, to help you understand a little bit more about why I would say that the answer to the question is yes, everything in the Bible is absolutely inspired by God. 
But for the sake of the story, let's presume that everything that is there is there for a reason. Let's presume that everything that's in the Bible was put there by a person, namely God, to help us, namely for our relationship with God. And the story picks up today on 15 days before Christmas. Today is December the 10th. That means that we are 15 days before December 25th. Today, we are 15 days before the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day. And the question is, what was happening in the story 15 days before the birth of Jesus? In the very first Advent, 2,000 years ago, what was happening in the lives of Mary and Joseph 15 days before Jesus was born? If you look at your bulletin on page 11, page 11 in the bulletin. Fifteen days prior to the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph were more than likely either on pilgrimage to Bethlehem or preparing to immediately leave for pilgrimage to Bethlehem. You can see there in the picture on page 11 in the bulletin that Nazareth in the north is 80 miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was 10 miles from Bethlehem. That means that the pilgrimage from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been 90 miles. Now, judging the speed with which people would have walked back then and, and the ordinary pace of travel back then, it would have taken much less than 15 days for, for two people to go 90 miles. However, remember that Mary is pregnant. And her travel would have been shaped by, perhaps limited by, the condition of her pregnancy. So they would not have been able to cover as much ground as they would have if she would not have been pregnant. So it would have probably taken, let's say, somewhere between 10 to 15 days for them to get from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. Now we know that they were called from Nazareth to Bethlehem because what we see in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, right? Um, Caesar Augustus called for a census of the entire world, right? And everyone who was uh, to be enrolled had to go to the ancestral city. That means Joseph would have been required by law to go to Bethlehem. Even though Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth, they would have had to travel the 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So, 2,000 years ago, 15 days before Christmas, Mary and Joseph would have been either preparing to leave for Bethlehem or they would have already been on the journey to Bethlehem. Now the question is, why Bethlehem? Of course, what we see, again, this is on page 11, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God makes a promise to David. This is the King David, the greatest king in all of the Old Testament, that the king of Israel would come from his, his loins, from his lineage, from him, right? In the line of David would come the king of Israel. God made this promise to David in 2 Samuel, and so Jesus, who was going to fulfill that promise, needs to come from the line of David. And if David was born in Bethlehem, then Jesus being born in Bethlehem is going to be a sign to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, that he, as the king of kings, is from David's line. However, 
Is that the only reason why they're going to Bethlehem? And this harkens back in the story. This brings us to the question. Do you believe that everything in the Bible is inspired by God? Because if everything in the Bible is inspired by God, then all of the details are inspired by God, and the details matter. See, sometimes I believe we can look at the Bible, and we can believe that God inspired the big things, but maybe there's a coincidence with the little things. But there is no coincidence in God, because if we believe that everything in the Bible is inspired by God, then everything in the Bible is inspired by God. Everything, every detail is arranged by God with great intentionality, because if the Bible expresses something about God, then the details express something about God. There is no coincidence. All of the small matters, all of the the intricate details, they are all arranged by God. Nothing in the Bible is coincidental. Nothing in God is accidental. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem for a specific reason. And it's not isolated simply to the line of David. Page 11. The word Bethlehem is comprised of the word Bet, which literally translates to household or house of and the word lehem, which literally translates as the word bread. So to the ancient Jewish mind, to God's chosen people at the time of Jesus, the word Bethlehem would have literally been translated as the house of bread or the household of bread. So Mary and Joseph, 15 days before Christmas, are making pilgrimage to Bethlehem. They're on the way to the ancestral home of David. They're on their way to a city which is named the House of Bread. Now again, all of the details matter. Everything in the Bible is inspired by God. And everything in the Bible is telling something about God. The details of the story are revealing something to us about God. Last week when we were together in week one of our Advent teaching, we talked a lot about the crib. We talked a lot about the crash, right? We talked a lot about this image that is here for us in the church, which is also listed for you on page 11. This image, this crib that was built by the missionaries who came from Georgia with the ministry life team that were with us last week. Last week, all week, in week one, we talked about this crib. And we said that this crib is an image of our hearts. Last week when we were together in week one of the teaching, we said that the crib is empty now, and it needs to be emptied by Christmas so that Jesus can be born in our hearts, just like Jesus is placed in the crib. However, the word crib is not used in Scripture. That's not the word that's in Scripture. That's not the word inspired by God. The word that we see in the Gospel of Luke is not crib, but manger. Why is it significant that Jesus is placed in a manger? As we anticipate the Christmas story, that is going to tell us a lot about this Advent story and the journey that we're on today. Look at the bottom of page 11, the manger. The word manger literally translates as feeding manger or feeding stall, right? In ancient Israel, a manger was a feeding trough 
used to feed animals. On page 11, look at the painting just to the left, on the bottom of page 11, right? That beautiful painting shows you the animals eating out of a manger. Now, the word manger is derived from the old French manger, right? And, and it, it translates into the Latin as to chew or devour. And we here in Grand Isle, he, we here in South Louisiana, who are familiar with French, are familiar with the word manger, which means to eat. So the word manger and the word manger, they go together. They are in the same um, description of what Jesus was placed in. Jesus, when he was an infant, was wrapped in swaddling clothes, and Mary placed Jesus in a manger, a thing which the animals used to eat. Jesus, who was born in the house of bread, as an infant, his body is placed in a manger. And the details are important. This is because Jesus, who later in life is going to claim to be the living bread, which will feed us in his infancy, his mother placed him in a manger to anticipate the fact that Jesus, when he is an adult, is going to feed us. The details matter. In this story, if you answer the question that everything in the Bible is inspired by God, then the details of the story matter. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, which is something you eat. When he was an infant, he was placed in a manger, a manger, which is something that you place food so that people can eat. The details matter. Page 12 in the bulletin. Page 12 in the bulletin. Jesus says that he is the living bread, right? In John chapter 6, verse 51, and I quote, read it with me in silence on page 12. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh. Stop right there. Jesus he is the living bread. He says, I am the living bread, the person of Jesus. And then he explicitly says that what he wants us to eat is not just his word, the Bible, that is the, the diet for a healthy spiritual life, but he actually says that the bread I will give is my flesh. Later, in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, he says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus has bread in his hands. And he says, This bread is my body. In John chapter 6 and in Luke 22, Jesus, he says, I am the living bread, and I want you to eat the bread and when you eat the bread, you are eating my body. You are eating my presence in the bread. The bread is me. I am in the bread. I am the living bread. Jesus, he says, when he grew up, that he is the living bread. And that's why when he was a child in the Christmas story, his mother placed his body in a manger. Jesus, the living bread who will feed the world, is placed in a, in a manger, a manger, as a sign that he has come to feed 
us. Now the question is, did, that after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, did anybody else believe that? Right, Jesus proclaimed that, but did others believe it? And specifically, did his apostles really believe this? Did they teach this? Did they live by this? Page 12. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, says, and I quote, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. End quote. Notice that St. Paul, he says two things in this quote. First, St. Paul acknowledges his belief and the belief of the early Christians that the bread is the body of the Lord. So St. Paul, make no mistake about it, St. Paul did not believe that the bread is a symbol. Popular amongst Christians today is a belief that the, the bread is a symbol. And I certainly understand why in those traditions they would teach that. However, in our Catholic tradition, we understand the Eucharist, which is given to us at Mass, to be the bread that St. Paul talks about, to be the bread that Jesus talks about. We believe in our Catholic tradition that at Mass, the bread is changed from bread into Jesus, right? Because that's what St. Paul believed. Why would receiving a symbol unworthily cause scandal to you and to the church unless that bread was actually the body of Jesus. See, St. Paul believed that the bread really was the living bread. He believed that the bread really was Jesus. So today, there's a little tension. I said to you at the beginning of our, of our conversation today that there was a question, that there was a story and there's some tension. What's the tension? The tension's around sin. And at this stage of the message, this is where today's homily gets a little personal. Because sin is personal. And so, so, so look at me now. Stay with me. I'm in it with you. But I love you enough to invite you to take a step spiritually. If you want to grow spiritually, I want that. God wants that. You want that. But that requires sometimes that you and I have an honest and real conversation. God's doing whatever he can to help you grow spiritually. Sometimes we need to take a little step ourselves. So today's gospel when John the Baptist talks about like making straight the crooked roads, right? In, in today's first reading, when the prophet Isaiah talks about this one crying out in the desert, both the first reading and the gospel today are going to talk about a new exodus, right? They're going to talk about the fact that we are being saved from sin. But sin's real, y'all. Like, I love you enough to invite you just to listen to the Bible. Page 12, in the middle. 
You know, a lot of times we say amen, right? And I learned a long time ago from Charles Mack, may he rest in peace, when I was pastor at St. Luke's in Thibodeau, that sometimes if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> and what that means is sometimes the word of God, while it is so straightforward and so clear and so like piercing, that it just has to kind of awaken like our hearts. And, and sometimes that hurts a little bit. This comes from the Apostle John in his first letter. And I quote, If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from every wrongdoing. If we say, we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. End quote. Sin is real. Now, we live in a world and live in a time where we like to pretend that there are no consequences to our actions. That's a conversation for a, another day. But if the Bible is inspired by God, and everything in the Bible is inspired by God. I don't know how any Christian could live in the pretend world that sin doesn't exist. That's a pretend world. That's a, a make-believe world with a make-believe Jesus. But if we believe that everything in the Bible is actually inspired by God, then so is God's teaching on sin. And I don't say that to make things heavy. I, I, I say that because I love you, and I want, I want to grow, and I want you to grow with me. Spiritual maturity is not gauged by how much you give in the collection today. Spiritual maturity is not gauged on the number of Bible passages you can quote. Spiritual maturity is not gauged on the number of Pinterest quotes that you have pinned to your bulletin board or the number of Facebook posts that you use to encourage people. Spiritual maturity is not being a nice person. Spiritual maturity is not gauged by how much you do in the name of Jesus. Those are all good things. But spiritual maturity is gauged by the authenticity and depth of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You've heard me say over and over that just because he died doesn't mean he's dead. Jesus is alive. He is actively pursuing us for a relationship now. Maturity in any relationship is gauged by its authenticity and its honesty. The health of a marriage. How do you know you have a healthy marriage? You have a healthy marriage if you are able to acknowledge and name, bring to the light the real things going on in your marriage. And just like in a healthy marriage, because one spouse wounds another spouse with specific words or specific actions, reconciliation, authentic 
reconciliation in a marriage is gauged by the, the depth and specificity of the apology. I often tell husbands, if I can pick on men for a second, that one I'm sorry, generally speaking, don't really say what you're sorry for, you just say I'm sorry. One I'm sorry doesn't make up for years of infidelity with a person or with pornography. Our sin against another is specific. That means our apology needs to be equally as specific. Spiritual maturity can be gauged by one's interior freedom to be specific in the recognition of and articulation of our particular sins. Now, I love you enough to say that. And I love God enough to want to be specific in the naming of my sin. I'm in this with you. And as I look at Christmas being only 15 days away, I want to be ready and I want to invite you to come with me. As I kneel before this crib right now, if this crib is my heart, then this crib is your heart. This crib is our hearts. Please, God, can we today want our hearts to be free on Christmas so that Jesus can be born anew in our hearts. Y'all, if that's going to happen, I know no other way for us to prepare for Jesus than for us to be specific about what are the sins that are preventing him from being born anew in our hearts. And that means we have to be specific in naming and then admitting our sin. And that's the tension, huh? That's where it gets hard. And that's why I believe that many of us experience our lives being no more changed on December 26th than they were on December 24th. And Christmas just becomes another holiday. Because while we want more with the Lord, sometimes it can be difficult taking this step around sin. That requires vulnerability. That requires maturity. So what's one thing you can do? Just one thing. What's one thing you can do this week? In the back of church, I have examinations of conscience. I have plenty of them. I want you to take one of those home with you. That means everybody on your way out of church or on the back table, when you walk out of church today, pick up an examination of conscience and take that home with you. And all I want you to do this week, one thing you can do this week, is just begin to review the examination of conscience and be super honest and super specific about the sins on that examination of conscience that are yours. Now, this is week two in a four-week teaching. Next week, we're going to talk about humility, and we're going to talk about what we do with those sins, but that's for next week. You don't have to do everything right now. All you have to do this week is one thing. Just take that one thing home with you, that examination of conscience, look at it this week, and just be honest. Now imagine if we all did that. Imagine what your life would look like this year if you were super specific about the sins that prevent you from knowing Jesus at a deeper and more personal level. Imagine what would happen in your life this Christmas if you were free of those very specific sins. 
Imagine what it would be like to go into the new year and, and, and march into 2024, an absolutely free person. And imagine what would it be to have this opportunity pass you by. Jesus Christ is looking at all of us right now, and he is giving us a choice. Now, he's already made his decision. He's already reaching out to you with the same initiative that he took to actually be, to take on flesh at Christmas to begin with. He's made his decision. And the question for you is what will yours be? Can we have the courage to be specific about sin so that we can have the receptivity in receiving the specificity of his love? Fifteen days from now to Christmas. Let's open up our hearts. Let's empty our hearts of sin so that Jesus Christ himself can be placed in our hearts this Christmas. God bless you.